Welcome to On the Way with Tony Crisp. Each weekday, Dr. Crisp will be discussing biblical passages, people, places, and prophecies. Tune in daily to start your day right and deepen your understanding of how to better walk the way and enjoy the journey. Here's your host, Dr. Tony Crisp. Welcome to On the Way. This is Tony Crisp, and this is podcast 356. We're in the period of the Exodus. And if you think about it, besides the book of Genesis, all of the rest of the Torah has to do with the Exodus from Egypt and getting the people ready to go into Canaan. And so four books deal with this. Of course, Deuteronomy is a summary of all of what God did from the time he brought the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. But what we have in the Exodus story is the foundation of how God would deal with the nation of Israel, not only in the past, but in the future. Now, we're going to learn about the offerings, the sacrifices, the tabernacle. We've got to spend a lot of time in the period of the Exodus because it sets the framework for everything that happens from the time that they leave Egypt all the way until the end of the Tanakh, the end of the Old Testament. So we're going to look at this in detail. But I want to call your attention today to Exodus chapter 6. Because as I have said previously to you, it's important that we understand that God is faithful to his promises. And the great story of God, the great story of sacrifice in the Crimson River has to do with God's faithfulness and the promises that he has made. God always is faithful to his promise. And we have to remember as we're studying these books of the law, of the Torah, of instruction, that indeed that's what it is. The word Torah doesn't mean law. It contains the law, but it means instruction because God is teaching them how to approach him, how to know him, how to walk with him. And sometimes we get caught up in the offerings and we get caught up in the sacrifices and the ceremonies law, but remember that God had not only the ceremonial law, but the moral law. What was that all about? It was to be our schoolmaster, our patagogos, our child conductor to bring us to the teacher, to the master Jesus. That's what Paul said, who was a rabbi, a student of the law. He said that the law was a patagogos. It was a child conductor. It was not the teacher, it was taking us to the teacher, because we would never, ever come unto Messiah Jesus. We would never come unto the anointed one, the Christos, without understanding our own sinfulness. And what the moral code of the law did was it named sin. It categorized sin. It brought it to its fruition and helped us to understand just how sinful we are. Charles Adam Spurgeon called it the 10 white horses of God's ability to plow up the soil of our lives, to get ready to plant the gospel in. You see, it names sin and calls it for what it is. Jesus intensified that even more in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you, if you look upon a woman to lust after her in your heart, not just looking at her, not just looking once, but twice in the third time, 
time and in your heart you begin to give in to that temptation, then you have already committed adultery in your heart. You've already coveted another man's wife. You've already coveted someone else's daughter or maid. And so Jesus brought it to its fruition that it has to do with the heart, not just some outward keeping of a moral law or some outward standard, but God deals with the heart. He said the same thing about murder. He said, if you are angry with a man, you see, murder is different from manslaughter and reckless homicide and all those things by one measure, and that is the intent of the heart. The intention was a person wanting to do this, planning to do this, plotting to do this, premeditating to do this. That's the difference in murder, and only God knows that. That's why it's so hard to prove intention, because unless there is evidence of that, unless there is something that gives us an idea about a person's motives by their words, their actions, so forth, it's hard to prove something like this with just circumstantial evidence, because intention is an entirely different thing than accidentally doing something. But Jesus said anger is the beginning of that. And so as we go through this, we don't need to get caught up in the sacrifices and all of those. We'll look at them. But you must understand that according to the book of Hebrews, other places, but it's so clear in the book of Hebrews chapter 10, that the blood of bulls and goats and rams and lambs could never take away sin. You see, all of the sacrifices, all of the rituals were pointing to the time when God would fulfill his word that he promised to Adam, that he renewed to Noah that he gave to Abraham in a cutting covenant, in a blood covenant, that it would be through Abraham's lineage that the Messiah would come, who would fulfill the promise of God in redeeming man from his sin and breaking the curse. Yes, the book of Galatians makes it very clear that cursed is the one that hangs on the tree, quoting the Torah, quoting the Old Testament. Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. And Jesus became a curse for us. He took the curse. He broke the curse that Adam and his sin brought upon the entire universe. And now the scripture says that the entire universe, according to Romans chapter 8, groans and moans, waiting for the total redemption of the sons of God, when God will remove the curse altogether and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. We're all waiting for that day, the redemption of the body, the redemption of the earth, and the creation is waiting for us. And so we're going to look at, first of all, chapter 6 of the book of Exodus as those of you who know anything about the Passover meal, Pesach, that appointed time when God said, I want you to remember every year what I did in bringing you out of the land of Egypt, out of Egyptian bondage, out of that place where I sent you so that I could make you a great nation, so that I could do what I wanted to do, so I could show the world that Indeed, I am God above all else. And it is in Exodus chapter 6 that we get the formula for the four cups that even Jesus himself would have gone over the night of Pesach, of Passover, that last Passover that he ate with his disciples in that Western Hill area before he went to Gethsemane. And in chapter 6, then the Lord, notice the word is all capitals, and anytime 
time you see that, that is YHVH. No one knows how to pronounce it because the Hebrew language does not use vowels. The Masoretes came along and put in vowels about the 11th century, the 10 hundreds, if you will, the thousand year of the thousands. And that's AD. That's a thousand years after Christ. And to put the vowel pointings in, but it's just YHVH. It's called the Tetragrammaton. That's the word for four letters. And that's all it is. We call it Yahweh, Yahweh, depending upon your pronunciation. We know it's not Yahweh. Jehovah, Jehovah, because we know that that is taking the vows of Adonai, Iowah, and putting those, placing those under those four letters, and that gives you Yahuwah, Jehovah. And we know that's not the pronunciation of God's name for sure. I love the song in the presence of Yahuwah, Jehovah, as much as you do. But that is not the name of the God of the Bible. It may be Yehieh, it may be Yahweh, whatever it is. The Jews rightly, I think, say Hashem, the name, because we just don't know what it is. But this is what he said. Then the Lord, as you know, the Jews say, Baruch Atah Adonai, Baruch Atah Adonai, blessed are you, Lord. So they are substituting the word Adonai, which is the word for Lord, Mr., Sir. And in this particular context, they are addressing God. Blessed are you, Lord God. Blessed are you, Adonai. And so it's translated in our Bibles, Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will let you go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of of his land. This is what God was hearing Moses say to him about the children of Israel. Verse 2, and God spoke to Moses and said unto him, I am Adonai, I am the Lord, I am the Tetragrammaton, I am these four letters. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, as El Shaddai. But That means, by the way, all-sufficient one. We translate almighty, but it comes from the word shad, which is a word for a woman's breast. It's the word for mountain. It's one of the words, not har, as in har megiddo, or mountain, as in a geographical location, but a mountain, as in a woman's breast. This is speaking of the sufficiency of a mother's milk, and especially the colostrum that has everything that a baby needs. It's the total sufficiency for health, for essential uh, sustenance. And God said, I am the all-sufficient one. And again, let me just say to you, the real argument today, as I see it, now this is my own personal opinion, is not for the inerrancy of Scripture. Most people that are in the evangelical world truly believe that, at least they say they do, that the Bible is inerrant. That means it is without error in its original autographs, in its way it was originally written. But that's not the argument we're dealing with today, with all the wokeism that's going on with everything that's happening. The question we've got to answer today is not only is the word of God inerrant, but it's sufficient. Let me just say to you, it is because it tells us of the all-sufficient God. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai, as the all-efficient one, as the Lord God who can meet every need, can do whatever needs to be done. But by my name, Yahweh, Adonai, Hashem, 
I was not known to them. In other words, what God said is they knew this name, but they didn't know me in the same enlightenment and revelation that I have given you, Moses. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, in which they were strangers, in which they were sojourners, they were foreigners, they were people who were just passing through. You see, Abraham never, ever got to see the fulfillment of this promise. Isaac never was able to see this fulfilled. Jacob was never able to see this fulfilled. But Moses was going to live to see that his people were going to come out of Egyptian bondage and even he did not get to see them going into the land in an earthly perspective, but his protege Joshua did. And he said, I have also, I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. And then in verse 6 and verse 7, he says, Therefore say the children of Israel, I am the Lord, I am this great God, and will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So God said, I'm going to bring you out. So this is one of the cups that is commemorated, and it's called the cup of setting apart. God said, that I am your God, I am the one who calls you, and I'm going to bring you out. And then he says, I will rescue you from bondage. And how did he do that? He did that through ten plagues. And this is part of the ceremony of Zikron, of remembrance. That is done every year at the Passover. And then the third thing he said is, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And he did. So there is a third cup of redemption. And then he says, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. That fourth cup is called the Hillel cup or the cup of praise, the cup of ingathering when all of God's people will see the fulfillment of the promises that God has made about the land and indeed God fulfilled that in taking them into the land just as he's promised. Now, what I want you to understand is ever since Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the tablets of stone written by the finger of God, then the people of Israel, the leaders of Israel, the influencers of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and later, almost 1,500 years later, the rabbis began to make comment about how these great promises are fulfilled and how to keep this law because somebody has to decide what work is. Someone has to decide what are the rituals that are going to help us to remember this so that we can pass it on to our children. God said, I want you to do it, but he didn't tell them how. And so this is why we have the Talmud, the Mishnah and the Gomorrah, the commentary on the law and the commentary on the commentary. And some of it gives us great insight into the thought processes of the Jewish people people. And remember, Jesus kept many things that were written in the Talmud. Now, it's not on par with Scripture, and uh, some of it is honestly, I say this respectfully, it's just bizarro. 
it's just minutiae that has nothing to do with the knowledge of God. But some of it is just exactly what we need to hear to help us to understand what God was trying to say to us. And so we cannot discount it altogether. And so this is part of what I want you to understand about this instruction, that the Torah is the instruction of God about how to approach him, how to come to him, and how the stages of redemption are acted out throughout the rest of the Word of God. I hope this has been a blessing to you and a good start on our period called the period of the Exodus. For On the Way, this is Tony Crisp. Thanks for listening to On the Way with Tony Crisp. Tune in every weekday for information on biblical passages, people, places, and prophecies. Fridays are for your questions. Email your questions to questions at TonyCrisp.org. Then just listen for your question to be answered on Friday's podcast. That's questions at TonyCrisp.org. Thanks for listening and have a blessed day on the way.